Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our January-February 2019 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. The approval of once-daily valbenazine for adults with tardive dyskinesia was based on clinical trials in which statistically significant mean improvement in total score on the Abnormal Involuntary Movement Scale, or AIMS, was the primary efficacy assessment. However, statistical significance does not necessarily denote clinical significance, and citing a mean score change does not provide patients with complete information about the benefits of medication. Additionally, the location and severity of abnormal movements vary from patient to patient, but the AIMS total score cannot address these differences. AIMS individual item scores are needed to better understand the effects of treatment in different body regions. In October 2016, a tardive dyskinesia assessment workshop was convened to discuss these issues. As reported in the May-June 2018 issue of this journal, Workshop participants proposed various analyses that would allow for more clinically meaningful interpretations of AIMS data. In the present study, researchers apply those analyses to CONNECT-3, a neurocrine-sponsored Phase 3 trial that included six weeks of double-blind treatment with once-daily valbenazine at a dose of 40 or 80 milligrams or placebo. Completers from this six-week placebo control period were eligible to continue in a long-term extension study. Post-hoc analyses of the CONNECT-3 AIMS data indicate clinically meaningful improvements with valbenazine. For example, participants on average had approximately 30% improvement after six weeks of valbenazine, and those who received valbenazine 80 milligrams per day were seven times more likely to experience 50% improvement or better than the placebo group. Analyses of the extension study indicated that the effects were sustained in participants who received up to 48 weeks of once-daily valbenazine. The authors hope that these analyses will help clinicians interpret clinical trial data and make relevant treatment decisions for their patients with tardive dyskinesia. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Psychiatric residents today typically receive little training in genetics. However, they are increasingly called upon to address genetic issues in their encounters with patients. To identify key genetic knowledge that should be taught in psychiatric training programs, the International Society of Psychiatric Genetics created a Residency Education Committee, which recently released a summary of their recommendations. They note that most psychiatric disorders are substantially heritable, and controlled family studies provide good information regarding risk. Specific genetic screening is now part of the standard recommended evaluation for patients with autism spectrum disorders and intellectual disability, but these standards are not yet widely implemented. Genetic testing for selection of medications is now widely available, and patients may request these tests or bring in results. 
Before these tests can be generally recommended, though, further clinical research is needed. New genetic methods and findings are emerging that will likely alter clinical care further in the next few years, and it's recommended that genetic education become an integral part of psychiatric training. The committee emphasizes that further work on implementation of the recommendations will require the participation of training programs and accreditation groups who share responsibility for the readiness of the next generation of clinical psychiatrists. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Extrapyramidal side effects have been identified as a complication of antipsychotic treatment, mostly in randomized clinical trials with highly selected patients. In this issue's CME offering, researchers from France examined the prevalence and clinical correlates associated with extrapyramidal side effects in a non-selected national multi-center sample of stabilized patients with schizophrenia. Between 2010 and 2016, patients were recruited through the Expert Centers for Schizophrenia Network, and data were collected during a comprehensive day-long standardized evaluation. The findings suggest a high prevalence of drug-induced Parkinsonism and tardive dyskinesia, 13.2% and 8.3% respectively. The study sample comprised of 674 community-dwelling, relatively young patients with a mean illness duration of approximately 11 years. Drug-induced Parkinsonism was associated with higher negative symptom levels, prescription of first-generation antipsychotics, and anticholinergic drug administration. Tardive dyskinesia was associated with higher disorganization or cognitive symptom levels. The authors note that in the monitoring of antipsychotic treatment, extrapyramidal side effects should be systematically evaluated, especially when negative symptoms and disorganization or cognitive alteration are present. More than one quarter of patients were administered at least one first-generation antipsychotic, and these patients were found to have higher drug-induced Parkinsonism levels despite the prescription of anticholinergic medications. The authors conclude that monotherapy with second-generation antipsychotics should be recommended as soon as possible to prevent the onset of extrapyramidal side effects in patients with schizophrenia. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Reports in the media about suicide that focus on coping with adverse circumstances can reduce suicidality among audiences. However, studies that investigate exactly which characteristics of media stories are actually most supportive of positive effects are scarce. In the present study, participants of an online survey read one of three media stories. Group 1 read a newspaper report featuring an interview with a suicide expert about overcoming suicidal crises in which the expert clearly expressed that she had never experienced a suicidal crisis in her own life. Group 2 read the same article. However, in this version, the expert disclosed that she had experienced and overcome a suicidal crisis in the past. The third group was a control group and read an interview with an expert about a health topic unrelated to suicide or mental health. 
Data on participants' suicidal ideation and suicide prevention-related knowledge were collected before and immediately after story exposure. Results show that the two interventions both significantly decrease suicidal ideation of the participants and increase their suicide prevention-related knowledge. There were no differences between the two intervention groups. These findings suggest that interviews with suicide experts emphasizing ways of coping with suicidal ideation appear to be effective in educating the public about suicide and in reducing suicidal ideation. Articles that feature health professionals with and without personal experience of suicide ideation appear to be similarly effective for conveying suicide education through the media. Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome, or PANS, is a debilitating neuropsychiatric disease characterized by overnight onset of severe obsessive-compulsive disorder and or food restriction, as well as other debilitating symptoms. These can include separation anxiety, mood lability, irritability and aggression, behavioral regression, abnormal movements, sensory amplification, sleep disturbance, and urinary changes. In this longitudinal study, funded in part by the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors analyzed caregiver burden inventories, or CBIs, completed by parents of children with PANS from 2013 to 2016 at a PANS multidisciplinary clinic. Overall, parents of children with PANS suffered from high caregiver burden comparable to the burden experienced by caregivers of patients with Alzheimer's disease and Rett syndrome. However, that burden lessened over time while children were being treated in the multidisciplinary specialty clinic. Caregiver burden scores correlated with children's psychiatric impairment scores. Additionally, longer lag time to first clinic appointment after onset of disease correlated with higher caregiver burden at first clinic visit, suggesting earlier intervention could be helpful for these families. Despite these findings, the authors caution that caregiver burden in PANS requires further study, as researchers still need to determine which clinical interventions, including parent skills groups, have the most impact on caregiver burden. One goal of clinical research is to help identify treatments that are best suited to individuals. In this double-blind, randomized controlled trial supported by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers sought to compare treatment response among some subgroups of patients by comparing the long-acting injectable medications haloperidol decanoate and haloperidone palmitate. They analyzed age, sex, race, presence of a substance use disorder, baseline symptom severity, and baseline medication adherence. They found that age significantly affected the primary outcome of efficacy failure, which was mostly indicated by a need for psychiatric hospitalization. Haloperidol was associated with significantly lower rates of efficacy failure than paliperidone among younger patients. There were no differences in any of the other subgroups on the primary outcome. With regard to side effects, an interaction of treatment and age on akathisia showed an advantage for paliperidone among younger patients. Effects on prolactin levels were examined separately for men and women. 
Haloperidol showed an advantage on prolactin levels that was larger among younger women than older women. Overall, while haloperidone was associated with more weight gain and increases in prolactin level, haloperidol was associated with more akathisia. Examining the heterogeneity of treatment effects is one approach to help guide treatment choices. This study's findings that age affects both the effectiveness and adverse events warrants further investigation. If age commonly moderates the effects of antipsychotics, the authors recommend that it should become an important consideration in clinical practice. Veterans who suffer from mild traumatic brain injury, especially those with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, frequently are troubled by persistent sleep disturbances. They often have to bear the consequences of increased daytime sleepiness, chronic fatigue, cognitive problems, mood swings, and poor health. Unfortunately, currently available pharmacologic agents are limited in successfully treating this difficult population without causing further side effects. In a randomized clinical trial sponsored by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the authors of the present study performed real and sham acupuncture treatments to compare their effects on sleep. The sham treatments used similar-looking but non-penetrating needles at inactive acupuncture points close to, but not identical with, active acupoints. The authors found that the feasibility and tolerance of the procedure was very high, with only an 8% dropout rate as compared to an average 30% dropout rate in pharmaceutical clinical trials. Six to ten real acupuncture treatments in five weeks improved participants' self-reported sleep quality and sleep efficiency significantly better than sham treatments. Although those veterans with PTSD presented with worse sleep disturbances, depression, anxiety, and pain at baseline, improvements were virtually identical to those for veterans without PTSD. These results indicate that an alternative treatment modality like acupuncture can potentially provide clinically significant, direct, and immediate relief for this particular veteran population. Because the improvements shown in this study were not sustained beyond the treatment period, the authors recommend that this treatment method merits further research. The pathophysiology of bipolar depression is controversial. Yet research has found links between elevated inflammation and oxidative stress and neuropsychiatric disorders, including bipolar disorder and depression. The authors of this double-blind, placebo-controlled study, with support from the Stanley Brain Foundation, aim to test whether non-steroidal anti-inflammatory treatments and the antioxidant N-acetylcysteine, or NAC, could improve depressive symptoms. 24 adults with bipolar depression were randomly assigned to receive either 1,000 milligrams of aspirin, 1,000 milligrams of NAC, a combination of NAC and aspirin, or an inactive placebo treatment for 16 weeks. Participants were asked to complete mood and global functioning questionnaires and undergo blood tests before, during, and after treatment. A key finding of the study was that following a 16-week treatment period, participants receiving the NAC-aspirin combination were more likely to show reduced depressive symptoms 
than those taking other treatments. This study, therefore, serves as a stepping stone for future studies assessing the efficacy, tolerability, and safety of anti-inflammatory and antioxidant agents in the treatment of bipolar depression. Response to placebo treatment in antipsychotic trials for schizophrenia has been increasing since 1960. This uptick in placebo response obscures the true differences, if any, between drug and placebo treatments, which in turn seems to result in increases of failed clinical trials. In this respect, it is critically important to screen out potential placebo responders early to optimize the design of future clinical trials. To shed light on this issue, the authors of this study analyzed data from 450 patients with schizophrenia who received placebo injections in four Johnson & Johnson-sponsored double-blind randomized controlled trials that evaluated the efficacy of long-acting injectable paliperidone palmitate. Multiple logistic regression analyses were conducted to examine associations between placebo response at week 9 and demographic and clinical characteristics. The predictive performance of improvement at week 1 for placebo response, defined as greater than or equal to 25% score reduction at week 9, was also examined. The authors found that percent score reductions at week 1 in the positive and negative syndrome scale were significantly associated with subsequent placebo response. They also found that a 10 to 15 percent improvement at week 1 was a reliable marker for subsequent placebo response at week 9. The authors conclude that this cutoff may be a useful threshold for the placebo lead-in phase to minimize trial failures for long-acting, injectable antipsychotics. Both undertreatment and futile overtreatment can be disastrous. How can clinicians find the right balance? In a recently published ASCP Corner article, Joseph Goldberg discusses related ethical and practical issues, and then delineates the disease management approach. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Borderline personality disorder, or BPD, is associated with elevated risk of suicide. Less is known about the risk for premature death not due to suicide in these patients. Additionally, no existing study of mortality in BPD has used a prospectively studied sample. Instead, studies have relied on post-mortem reports or chart review to obtain information about these patients and their deaths. In the current study, researchers sought to determine rates of mortality due to suicide and other causes in a prospectively studied sample of patients with BPD and personality-disordered comparison subjects. They also examined which baseline patient characteristics best predicted these outcomes, and looked at the impact of recovery from BPD, defined as symptomatic remission and good psychosocial functioning, on mortality rates. 
With support from the National Institute of Mental Health through the McLean Study of Adult Development, the study sample included 290 adults diagnosed with BPD and 72 personality disordered comparison subjects who were recruited during inpatient admission. These patients were followed and reassessed every two years for 24 years. Results showed that 5.9% of patients with BPD and 1.4% of comparison subjects died by suicide. Additionally, 14% of borderline patients and 5.5% of comparison subjects died by non-suicide causes. These outcomes could be predicted by a variety of patient characteristics, and the clear majority of borderline patients who died were not recovered from BPD before death. Taken together, these findings suggest that individuals with BPD are at elevated risk of premature death and that non-recovered patients are at a disproportionately higher risk of early death. Anxiety disorders are prevalent and impairing in children and adolescents, but frequently improve with pharmacotherapy. To date, nearly two dozen randomized controlled trials have evaluated the efficacy of antidepressants, benzodiazepines, alpha-2 agonists, and other classes of medication for pediatric anxiety disorders. However, despite this research, important questions regarding efficacy and tolerability remain. In one of our CME offerings for this issue, Dobson and colleagues performed a network meta-analysis involving all double-blind placebo-controlled trials of pharmacotherapy in the treatment of pediatric patients with generalized, social, or separation anxiety disorders. They found that compared to placebo, SSRIs were the only medication class that was superior in reducing anxiety and in the likelihood of producing a treatment response. However, SNRIs and alpha-2 agonists were associated with more frequent treatment response versus placebo. Additionally, the likelihood of treatment response was greater for SSRIs than SNRIs. All-cause discontinuation and treatment-emergent suicidality differed significantly among medications, but not medication class. The authors note that while multiple medications reduce anxiety in children and adolescents, treatment response, tolerability, and treatment emergent suicidality differ among these medications and medication classes. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Anxiety symptoms and disorders are common during the perinatal period and many affected women prefer non-pharmacologic approaches, such as psychotherapy, to manage their mental health conditions. E-health interventions can provide accessible and timely treatment options for those who prefer less anonymous approaches for treatment. These interventions are cost-effective, convenient, and have been shown to be effective in improving anxiety among the general population. And yet, despite their effectiveness for perinatal depression, a recent review reported mixed results for perinatal anxiety. The publication was not focused on anxiety, however, and studies with various designs were included. 
To summarize the evidence on this topic, the authors of the present systematic review conducted a meta-analysis to determine the pooled effect of e-health interventions on improving perinatal anxiety. Their findings show that with e-health interventions, perinatal anxiety significantly improved. All included studies were primarily focused on depression, highlighting the need for a trial focused on anxiety. The content of the interventions was also mainly focused on depression. All studies reported a large effect size for e-health in reducing depression. However, reductions of anxiety scores and other variables were small and often non-significant. Given the prevalence and comorbidity of depression and anxiety, the authors conclude that e-health interventions for perinatal mental health should cover both disorders. Their results also suggest that social disparities appear to remain important in the utilization of these types of interventions. Women with more complicated life circumstances may benefit from a combined approach of e-health and traditional treatment. Schizophrenia is a chronic disorder, and although patients may recover from acute psychotic episodes, Antipsychotic treatment is probably still necessary during periods of euthymia to prevent relapse. Unfortunately, many patients experience interruptions in treatment, and even short periods of only partial non-adherence can greatly increase relapse risk. Clinicians need to understand the complex factors that lead patients to not take their medications, which can range from simple forgetfulness to a refusal to accept the need for treatment. This information will enable practitioners to implement appropriate management strategies to prevent treatment interruptions. In this academic highlights CME activity, supported by an educational grant from Alchemies, doctors John Luriello and Diana Perkins review the risks associated with interruptions in antipsychotic treatment and discuss effective strategies for ensuring that patients remain engaged in treatment. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Some studies have indicated that drugs used to treat depression might increase the risk of cataract. In a new installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade takes a closer look at the study methodology used and weighs possible causes for the observed association. In another column, Dr. Andrade again considers how study methods can affect the conclusions drawn, specifically the question of whether an adverse event was caused by the drug used or by the condition itself. In doing so, he points to the importance of controlling for confounding by indication in observational studies. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the January-February table of contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the January-February issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.